Hey y'all, it's still Women's History Month, so we're not done examining Black women's history. This episode is about a group of Black women who haven't been written out of history. Their story is just always told without giving them the agency they deserve. Today we're going to talk about Black domestic workers. And I'm going to tell the story The Help Doesn't. This is a story of domestic workers as organized laborers who came together to advocate for better working conditions and to insist on changes to labor laws. To help me tell that story, I'm going to talk to Professor Pramila Nadison of Barnard College and also author of the book Household Workers Unite, which tells the story of domestic worker organizing in the 1950s through the 1970s. Thank you very much, Brooklyn. It's lovely to have a chance to speak with you. Thank you for coming. To start, I want to kick off this episode just by talking about the fact that in the book, you talk about how domestic workers were generally excluded from other labor movements within the 20th century, which there were a lot of those. And your book, just the fact that it uncovers this history also shows that they're excluded from the history of labor. When people write about labor history, it's also generally does not include what domestic workers were doing. So I want to know why both then and now domestic workers have been ignored as organized laborers. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, as you say, our history of the labor movement is one that has typically excluded domestic workers. So labor historians who are writing about the labor movement often focus their studies on white men who are industrial workers. So we have lots of histories of the AFL-CIO. We have histories of the sit-down strikes in the auto plants in the 1930s, but you rarely hear the stories of domestic workers who've organized. And then the other part of it is the ways in which domestic workers have been excluded from labor unions. So there were unions that formed in the early 20th century and then again in the 1930s and then in the 1960s. So the whole range of workers that have unionized in the industrial sector And in the service sector, we have teachers unions, we have janitors unions, we have all kinds of workers reforming into unions, but domestic workers have been excluded from those as well. I think there are a few reasons for this. One of this has to do with the ways in which labor is defined. So when I think union leaders and when labor historians think about workers, they don't tend to think about work that's being done in the home. The typical image that comes to mind is the factory floors, people who are working in these large mass settings. So some of it has to do with the fact that domestic work is work that takes place in the home behind closed doors. It also has to do with the fact that domestic workers tend to be isolated employees. Most households only employ one domestic worker or maybe two. So I think that's another way in which this work is invisibilized. But I think the most important reason has to do with the politics of race and gender. And that is, this is an occupation that has been filled by either immigrant women, which was the case in the 19th century, or by African-American women. And African-American women always served as domestic workers in the South, both during slavery and then after slavery. In the North, there were Irish immigrants, German immigrants. On the West Coast, there were Japanese immigrants. But race really played a powerful role in how these workers were seen. And they were considered kind of outside the boundaries of labor. They were considered people who didn't deserve as much as other workers, who weren't supporting a family, who weren't breadwinners. And I think all of those stereotypes really come into play in terms of how domestic workers are seen. And perhaps 
the critical issue, I think, that kind of signified the exclusion of domestic workers had to do with the passage of the New Deal in the 1930s. And for your listeners who might not know, the New Deal was a body of legislation that gave workers in the United States most of the rights that we associate with work today. So when we are paid overtime after working an eight-hour day, that's because of the New Deal. Uh, When we are guaranteed a lunch break, if we work at least four hours, then that is a result of the New Deal. Social security, unemployment insurance, domestic workers, and importantly, agricultural workers were excluded from the New Deal provisions in the 1930s. And that is because those two occupations were made up of African-Americans. And you can listen to the debates in the 1930s in Congress, and people are saying African-Americans shouldn't be protected by this legislation. And so Southern congressmen in particular were very vocal about the need, from their point of view, maintain the racial and class hierarchy in the South. So it was a real struggle for domestic workers. I think even though they did, in fact, organize that labor history is incorrect, that they didn't, there's a long history of organizing. And Tara Hunter, who's a professor at Princeton, was one of the first people to write about African-American washerwomen who organized in the 1880s. So there has been organizing, but it really has been an uphill battle without a lot of support from mainstream unions. Unsurprising, and like most histories on this show, this is not a more well-known and publicized history because of racism. Yeah, I mean, I think we cannot underplay the role of racism in the labor movement. It influenced legislation as it unfolded. And it also, as I mentioned, influenced labor unions. So labor unions, mainstream, now there's a broad range, a broad diversity of labor unions, but the early labor unions that were run by white male workers excluded people of color. So there were quotas and there were there were barriers to who could join. The labor unions on the West Coast, for example, excluded Chinese workers. And they actually had a label about white made cigar, especially the cigar makers union. And it really wasn't until the 1930s that you see more inclusion of African-Americans and other people of color into the efforts to unionize. But even then, I think domestic workers are still really outside the boundaries of that. And then the legacy of slavery also is heavy over Black domestic workers. And and it is, you know, it, it is a racialized occupation. I don't think we can kind of ignore the history of racism and slavery in shaping how and why African-American women come to be seen as the most important labor force in the household. And of course, as I said, in the South, African-American women served as domestic workers under slavery, but even after slavery. But then in the North as well, they also become identified as the ideal domestic workers, as the people who could be in the home, who could clean and cook and take care of children all at the same time and could be paid very little. One of the ideological frameworks that justified and framed African-American women as the ideal domestic workers was the trope of the mammy. And that's a racist trope that begins to emerge in the late 19th century. This is well after slavery. And it's during this period of reconciliation between the North and the South. The North eventually says 
we will continue with the kind of racialized hierarchies that define this country in the 19th century. So they're essentially giving up on the struggle that was central to Reconstruction. But part of this was a kind of romanticization of the slave South. And that's where the Mammy figure emerges, because Mammy is this racist trope of an African-American woman who's very happy to work in a white household, who almost embraces the white family as her own family, is very content, devotes her life. And Margaret Mitchell, in her book, Gone with the Wind, relied on the Mammy trope. It was an immensely popular book in the 1930s. And Mammy becomes this figure who doesn't have a life of her own, who never resists, who never challenges, who's incredibly loyal and content. And so African-American women come to be seen in the slides as loyal servants who are really embraced as one of the family. Those provisions you talk about in the New Deal, the fact that they exclude domestic workers basically legalizes this stereotype. It kind of cements in law the idea that Black women are working in white households, not because it's work, not because they need the money, but because they want to be doing that because that's work that they enjoy. And that's one of the biggest aims that you point out with domestic worker organizing was that they didn't want to be seen as servants. They wanted to be seen as workers because that's what they were doing, work. Absolutely. So as I mentioned, this idea of one of the family was really central because the assumption that people really like this work, they want to do this work. So it's not really work because they enjoy it, because they love the family. And of course, the other association with one of the family is much of the work that takes place in the home is done by largely women anyway, who are in the household and are not paid for it, right? So it's the unpaid labor, household labor that women have done for generations. But obviously when one is employed in a household, it's very, very different. And so part of the struggle for domestic workers has been the recognition of the home as workplace. How can we understand the home as workplace? How can we recognize and acknowledge that these individuals are in fact workers and are not simply there because they wanna be there because they love the family? And so the domestic worker movement that I write about in the 1960s and the 1970s were very, very clear about what they wanted their terms of the employment to be. And they didn't want to be called maids. They didn't want to be called servants. They didn't even want to be called domestic workers. They wanted to be called household technicians. And for them, that signified that this is work that is skilled work that require some knowledge. And if anybody's ever done any, you know, it takes skill to learn how to clean properly, how to take care of a child, how to cook. These are all skill-based occupations. And we tend to think of it as unskilled work, but it is not unskilled work. And so they instituted training programs for domestic workers so they could then be certified. They wanted a contractual relationship, right? Because one of the... um, one of the characteristics of the occupation was that somebody would hire a domestic worker and it was not clear what they're supposed to be doing. Or they were told, oh, you're going to be taking care of the child. But they're not only taking care of the child. The employer also asked them to clean, then asked them to take care of the dog, and then asked them to you know, cut the grass or whatever it is, right? So the job becomes much bigger than what they originally were told the job was. And it's this idea of servitude. Somebody's in your employment and you basically own their time. You own what they do. You own everything at that moment. If we think about the jobs that most of us have, if you're hired as a line cook in a restaurant, right? 
you typically are not then asked to go clean the toilets, right? Or if you're hired as a secretary somewhere, right? You know, you are not then given additional tasks. We understand when we get a job, you get a job and you know what your job, we all ask for a job description. What is my job description, right? And we want to know what it is we're expected to do. So that's what domestic workers wanted. They wanted a contract that specified, these are the tasks that I'm responsible for. These are my breaks. This is the time off I'm going to get. If These are the number of sick days I will get. And so they wanted everything spelled out so there would be no confusion between employer and employee and so that they wouldn't be cheated. One of the things that happened frequently with domestic workers is they would often be asked to work extra time. So they're supposed to get off at five o'clock. Employer calls and says, oh, I'm running late. I have some things to do. Can you stay until six o'clock? Right. And there's just an expectation that they would do so. And it's very difficult because if you're taking care of a child, and the employer says they're not coming home for another hour, what do you do? You can't leave the child. So they're in a very tough situation. So that's why a contract and specified working hours and overtime pay, all of that uh, was really important in terms of their uplifting their occupation and ensuring that they have rights. That's that standard, the book, you talk about how they wanted standardization. And the way you just described it, that makes so much sense because household workers generally they all worked in different houses so everyone had different employers so i guess the job description what it looked like how much you would get paid varied so much that you would want things to be standardized absolutely i mean especially as an occupation that was excluded from labor law because if you think about what labor legislation in the 1930s under the new deal did it said all workers should work eight hours. And if you work more than eight, well, not all should work, but if you work full time, you work eight hours. If you work more than eight hours, you get paid time and a half. If you work on weekends, you get paid double, right? Time and a half or double. So there's, you know, if you work more than four hours, you get a, a break. And that is standardization. That's what it means to have rights. It's to know that if in fact this happens, then you will be guaranteed this. And so because domestic workers had been excluded from these protections for so long, and it was really at the whim of the employer, because there was such a power imbalance in the relationship. It's so easy to fire a domestic worker. It's one employee. If they don't cooperate, you fire them and you hire somebody else. So there's a real power imbalance in the relationship. And so standardization was really important. And so domestic workers organized on a city or a state-based level. They also organized on the national level. On the national level, they pushed for coverage of the Fair Labor Standards Act, which was the minimum wage law, to cover their occupation. The Fair Labor Standards Act was passed in the 1930s, excluded domestic workers, and they won that fight in 1974. So for the first time, domestic workers were included in minimum wage legislation. But the standardization, even based on other things, based on the number of breaks, on whether or not they might get transportation covered, if they were living, what their accommodations would look like. That's what they fought for is this idea that it doesn't matter who you're working for, that there actually should be a certain standard that all employers abide by. And I think that the fact that domestic workers 
were single employees in a home, of course, made it harder for them to organize because they they couldn't go on strike the way other workers could. It was even hard for them to meet other employees. You don't know if three houses down, there's a domestic worker working there. There might be, there might not be, but you can't see them. So it was much harder for them to organize the way traditional workers did who worked in mass settings. So one of the things that domestic workers did is they turned to public spaces. They began to organize in the city parks where other workers were taking care of children and they reached out to them. They organized on the buses. So one of the women I write about, Dorothy Bolden, lived in Atlanta and she rode the city buses. She knew the bus lines and the black neighborhoods where all the women who were employed in white homes got on the buses and they went to downtown Atlanta and had to transfer to other buses that took them to the white areas where they were employed. And so Dorothy Boulder would ride these buses and would begin to talk to women and hand out leaflets and talk about forming a union, what she called a union, even though domestic workers were not legally allowed to form unions. And she did eventually form an organization in Atlanta that was very successful. So they had to think creatively. They had to think outside the box. They had to find new ways to organize. I think that's a very important part of their movement. Yeah, you just got into so many good things. You hit on a lot of the difficulties that you bring up about organizing for household workers, the fact that they all had different employers, the fact that their employers could very easily fire them, which meant that their jobs were always at risk whenever they did try to do anything, the fact that they were in isolated working conditions, so it was hard to just meet other people. And we were talking about alternative organizing, and you brought up buses, which there's a really interesting part of your book where you talk about household workers during the Montgomery bus boycott. And I did want to get into that a little bit. Yeah, and I think this speaks to the role of African-American domestic workers in the civil rights movement as well. So I'll just say that I think that the history of domestic workers tells us about so much more than just domestic work. <laughs> There's There are lessons here about labor. There are lessons about the civil rights movement. There are lessons about feminism. There's all kinds of lessons. There's lessons about how we can organize today as well. But I think one of the lessons is about how we understand the civil rights movement. And the Montgomery bus boycott was really a pivotal event in the civil rights movement. It was the event that really propelled Martin Luther King into the national spotlight. And other people have written about the role that domestic workers played in the Montgomery bus boycott, that they were the foot soldiers, is how they're often written about, the foot soldiers of the Montgomery bus boycott. They were the women who sustained the boycott because they refused to ride the buses. But part of the story I tell in my book is that they were not just foot soldiers, but they were actually leaders in the Montgomery bus boycott. And there's one woman in particular whose story really captured my attention. Her name was Georgia Gilmore. And she was a, she had multiple occupations. She was a midwife. She was a nurse. She was a domestic worker. And she was a cook. And she actually began her own one-woman boycott of the buses well before Rosa Parks, right before her arrest. And Georgia Gilmore, once the boycott started, began to support it. And then she went out and she contacted other domestic workers and she started to raise money for the boycott. And these domestic workers, they sold chicken dinners, they made pies and cakes. 
and they made these dinners and they sold them to other people in the neighborhood and raised money. And they called themselves a club from nowhere because they were very concerned about being fired by their employers. And they raised hundreds of dollars and they presented it to the mass meetings in Montgomery. And Georgia Gilmore was eventually fired in large part because of her political activity. She, she went on to start a little restaurant out of her home. And that restaurant became a kind of a meeting ground for really important people. Martin Luther King often had meetings there. John F. Kennedy came to her home to have a meal. And so she really, I think, embodies the ways in which domestic workers have played a leading role in affecting political change. And I don't think we can underplay or downplay the ways in which they have shaped how resistance movements have unfolded. You pointed out that domestic workers don't just reveal stuff about domestic work and what happened in white households in the 20th century. They also reveal things about wider social movements, the civil rights movement, for example, but also feminism, which actually in some ways was both an ally and opposition to domestic worker organizing in your book. So yeah, let's talk about feminism's ties to household workers. It's interesting because as we've already discussed, the labor movement was not, the mainstream labor movement was not very supportive of domestic worker organizing. And actually neither were civil rights leaders. So even though domestic workers were an important part of the civil rights movement in Montgomery and elsewhere, the mainstream civil rights leaders didn't step up and support those domestic workers who organized. But feminists did. So the National Organization for Women, Gloria Steinem, there were business and professional women's organizations that all advocated passage of the Fair Labor Standards Act amendments so domestic workers would have minimum wage protections and they allied with them. And I think part of the reason why we see feminists stepping up and supporting domestic workers is because they understood very well how much they as middle-class women So when I say feminists, I'm talking about the mainstream white feminist movement. I've written quite a bit about the multiple definitions of feminism and how there were many African-American women who were a part of the feminist movement. But again, because of this, the way in which the history of the women's movement has been written, they've been kind of removed from that, or the ways in which the history of feminism is defined is often about issues that don't necessarily speak to the interests of African-American women and other women of color and working class women. So when I say feminist right now, I'm talking about the white middle-class mainstream movement, even though we understand that the definition of feminism is and should be broader than that. So the mainstream white women did in fact support domestic workers because they understood that they relied on domestic workers. In order for them to go out and get their jobs, right, as white middle-class women wanted to do in the 1960s and 70s, they needed to have somebody at home who was taking care of their children and who was cleaning their homes, right? And so there was support in passage of the Fair Labor Standards Act. But there's also that relationship about the ways in which white middle-class women relied on domestic workers African-American domestic workers, other women of color, especially after 1965, the occupation begins to change, and more and more other women of color are included in the occupation. But as I was also saying, 
white middle-class women in the 1960s and 70s defined feminism in terms of employment outside the home. So these are women who had stayed home as mothers, were full-time mothers. And, you know, I think it's important to point out that for working class women, especially African-American women, they didn't have the luxury of staying home and being full-time parents, right? It was hard. They were required to work because they they needed the income. Wages were lower for African-American families, so they often couldn't survive on one income. African-American women were expected to work as domestic workers. There's a very long history of the ways in which African-American women were excluded from welfare and the welfare roles under this assumption that they should be working and not staying home to care for their children. But for white middle-class women in the 60s and 70s, their definition of liberation was to enter the workforce. And they, they relied on domestic workers to do that labor in the home. And I think what we ended up seeing in the 1970s and the 1980s is in fact a, what we might call a successful women's movement. So we saw more and more women entering the workforce. We've seen over the past 30 years or so more women in positions of power, the CEOs, the heads of corporations, women professors, women doctors, women lawyers, right? We've seen more and more women in these middle-class occupations, working-class women as well. But working-class women have always worked. That's one thing we have to remember, right? Black, brown, and white working-class women have always worked. But we've seen more middle-class women who've, who've entered the workforce. And we hear a lot about breaking the glass ceiling, about their successes, about empowerment as women. I think that that has only been possible because of the expansion of the occupation of domestic work. And so the very success that we see of women in the professional sector is because of this availability of low-wage domestic workers. And unfortunately, despite the domestic worker rights movement, conditions for domestic workers have not improved considerably. After 1965, after the change of the immigration law, we saw an influx of other black and brown women who entered the United States, many of whom ended up as domestic workers. We know that domestic workers, even though they have some legal rights today, those rights are often not enforced. Their employers still have an enormous amount of power over them. We see instances of people who are being mistreated and being abused. And so I think we cannot consider the ways in which the successes of the feminist movement, the successes of middle-class women, the price for that has really been paid by Black and Brown in class women. That does give you a very different perspective into the feminist movement to realize so much of it was on the backs of working-class women of color. It's interesting just the fact that there's a way that middle-class women wanted better for household workers so that they could employ them, so that they would have them, so that they could go out and take jobs that they thought made them better than household workers. Yeah, absolutely. So there was a kind of denigration of household labor by the white middle-class women's movement. So if we look at Betty Friedan, for example, who in some ways was the icon of the feminist movement, who wrote the very famous book called The Feminine Mystique, that talked about how women were trapped in the homes 
and were doing meaningless work, as she put it, work that was not joyful, work that didn't stimulate them intellectually. It was a real denigration of household labor and that the ways in which these women could find fulfillment is by pursuing their passions and leaving the home and going back to college and getting a more meaningful career. And so that very narrative, as Friedan wrote it, was about, as you put it, the denigration of housework and the kind of uplifting of professional work that women could do outside the home. And so part of the other tension with white middle-class feminists and domestic workers was about what this work meant. Even though white middle-class feminists understood how they relied on domestic workers, I think they always thought that that was not work that they wanted to do. Whereas domestic workers, on the other hand, as they, and nearly all the domestic workers I write about, really valued the work that they did. Some of them loved the work that they did, and they saw it as a very important work, as work that sustained the household, as work that was necessary. Who was going to take care of the children? Somebody has to take care of their children. And so they understood it as incredibly important, incredibly necessary work. There's an organization in New York City called Domestic Workers United that was formed about 20 years ago. They're still active today. And they have a slogan that says, it's the work that makes all other work possible. And so we have to understand how essential this work is for the sustaining of our society, right? Because middle-class people would not be able to go to work if there weren't somebody home taking care of the children and doing all that household labor. Now, I kind of want to backtrack just a little bit back to more of the strategies of household worker organizing because the difficulties of doing that when the work was so isolated and they had so many different employers. So a lot of the focus of organizing was about empowering individual women to go back to their jobs and make demands for better in their own place of employment because they couldn't collectively bargain. And I just want to talk a little bit more about strategy. So I think it was a combination of the two. So people did organize collectively and they organized collectively for passage of the Fair Labor Standards Act. They organized collectively to establish a certain kind of citywide standard. So in Atlanta, Dorothy Bolden tried to establish a kind of minimum wage for domestic workers in Atlanta. They would establish hiring halls. This was all collective. In some cities, domestic workers started hiring halls where employers could come and workers could come, and therefore the organization would have a little more control over the terms of the employment. And they established contracts. That was also collective. But in addition to that, they tried to empower individual domestic workers to be able to negotiate with their employers directly, because that ultimately had to happen, right? A domestic worker had to be a self-advocate, had to be clear with her employer about what she was and was not willing to do, about what she needed, about when she needed to get off. And I think one of the things that domestic workers realized is they were incredibly valuable in the household. They were incredibly important to the running of the household, that their employers relied on them, sometimes because they had developed long-term relationships with the children they were taking care of, and they were, in a sense, irreplaceable, 
right? If a, if you have a child and you have a domestic worker and they, they have a bond, it's not so easy to simply fire that person and hire somebody else. And so I think many domestic workers were acutely aware of the kind of power they held in the household. And they began to think about how to use that power to negotiate terms of employment that would be fair and just for them. And that becomes especially important after legislation was passed in the 70s to give more rights to domestic work, because no one was going to enforce that if domestic workers didn't go into the house and educate their employers and tell them about it. So it was a lot about individuals advocating for their own rights. Absolutely. I mean, there was really no enforcement of the labor law that did apply to domestic workers. Uh, The Department of Labor wasn't sending officials out to check on employers to see if they were paying overtime or if workers were getting the break they were required to give. They had no idea. So yeah, it really was up to the workers themselves to ensure that their rights were protected. And I think that's a really important lesson because ultimately that to me is what labor organizing is about. It's about empowering workers. It's not necessarily about Finding somebody to speak on your behalf is is often the case with labor unions, right? You have a union steward or you have a union president that's supposed to speak on your behalf. But I think one of the really powerful lessons of the domestic worker rights movement is how to empower ordinary workers, right? How to give them a voice, how to give them the the space to be able to maneuver, to be self-advocates and to protect their own rights. You said, you keep saying that the way that domestic workers organized in the past, there's some lessons for how workers can and should be organizing now. So what are some of those or even just one that you think is really salient? I think our model of labor organizing, as I mentioned, is centered on these mass spaces, industrial workers working for an auto company or for a steel company. And it's premised on negotiating with an employer that's going to give you concessions, higher wages, health care, vacation, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that that's not the model of employment today. The workforce has shifted. So today, most people are don't get a job at a high school and work for the same employer their whole lives. That's just not the way it works. Most people shift from employer to employer or they shift from occupation to occupation. People are much more mobile than they were 70 years ago. And so in this new context, many, many more people are working as independent contractors. That is, they don't get any benefits from their employee. They're considered self-employed or they're working part-time or they're working in precarious situations, right? They are temporary workers. So they're hired as temporary workers somewhere only to be let go within a few months. So in this context, I think domestic workers can teach us about how to organize these independent contractors. Domestic workers were the original independent contractors, right? And so, again, it goes back to that model of how to empower individuals to self-advocate and how to come together collectively, maybe outside of the employer's home, right? Outside of your employment situation. How do we begin to organize in public spaces? How do we organize for state-based protections that will protect everybody in an occupation or even in a sector, whether or not they're employed by the same person last year or this year, right? So I think what we need and what domestic workers can teach us is about broad-based protections for workers, regardless of who employs them and regardless of what 
occupation they hold at any given moment. That's so good. Thank you so much for coming and talking to me about your book, Ed, for that great lesson about how we need to labor organize right now. Well, it's wonderful to speak to you. Thank you so much. So there you have it. A little on labor's history, present and future. A little history of the civil rights movement, a little history of feminism, and a whole lot about Black women's influence on all of those histories. If you want to learn more, check the link in the show notes and get the book, Household Workers Unite. And if you like this show, share it, rate it, follow on Facebook or Instagram at We The Black People Pod. And all power to all people, y'all.